0: Every soldier remembers their first battle, the sights and the sounds and the smell and the terror and the relief that they survived. Though they may never admit it, even though they may never talk about it, they remember these thoughts and feelings and sights and sounds until the day they die. Now C.S. Lewis captures this so well in the story, the Narnian story, The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe. And the scene is this. What happens is a wolf, ferocious wolf, was broken into the camp and and Susan has scrambled up a tree to save her life and she's nearly falling over. And Peter, who's who's never fought before, has to do something. And this is his first battle. C.S. Lewis writes this. Peter did not feel very brave. In fact, he felt like he was going to be sick. But that made no difference to what he had to do. He ran straight up to the wolf and swung his sword at its side. The wolf turned around and howled in anger. If it hadn't been for the howl, it probably would have gotten him. As it was, Peter just had time to thrust the sword between the wolf's side and directly into its heart. And there was this horrible, confused moment, like something from a nightmare. The wolf seemed neither alive nor dead. There was hair and teeth everywhere. A moment later, he found the wolf lying dead. And Peter was straightening out his back and wiping the sweat off his face and he felt tired all over. Then after a bit, Susan came out of the tree. C.S. Lewis here describes something wonderfully, I think, of the of the terror and the fear and the um, triumph, really, of surviving one's first battle. Something that a young shol- soldier in today's passage surely must have felt. Uh, For today we're going to be introduced to a brave young man, probably a very similar age to Peter in the Narnian stories. A brave young man and his first battle. Now this young man would go on to lead a mighty army and conquest a land, win victory after victory. But today, this is his first battle. So as we come to scripture, as we come to pick up Exodus chapter 17, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that our spirits will be open to hear what you want us to hear today. Open our deaf ears, soften our hard hearts so that we can hear your word and see Jesus lifted up. Through his name we pray. Amen. So we pick up our passage in Exodus chapter 17. And just before we do a bit of a background, remember the Israelites have escaped from Egypt Cross the Red Sea, but they haven't made it to Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. A journey of a, two or three months. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ryan picked up the story of having the Israelites' thirst quenched from water from the rock. And they're at the same place. So they're still around this water, being, their thirst has been quenched, but there's a problem. And we picked this up in chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. So, we need a bit of a background here, a few introductions. Who are the Amalekites and who was Joshua? Well, the Amalekites, well, they were probably more likely a Bedouin type people. Transient people. So even though the Israelites were going through the wilderness and the back of beyond, the Amalekites, they still had an interest in that land. And so we read some more detail, more background of what's happening here in Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Now, this is 40 years on, and Moses is looking back to this first battle. And this is what he writes about this first battle. Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 17. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out. They met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. You see what's happening here? Uh, Israelites are, are weary, traveling through the wilderness. The Amalekites start picking off the stragglers and start engaging in warfare. So in response to this aggression, Moses orders Joshua to select some men and that next day take the fight to the Amalekites. So who does he select? I mean, who is this Joshua? Well, along with the three siblings, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Joshua's a name to watch out for in the Exodus story. Who is he? Well, a little bit is known, not a lot, but a little. And uh, we see this in Numbers eleven twenty-eight. We see the three things about Joshua. Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said and we're not too worried today about what he said but we're told three things first of all his father none and in the Jewish context that genealogical connection is very important second we're told that he's a young man like I said at this stage probably the same age as Peter and the Narnia stories and thirdly uh, we're told that he's been Moses's aide for a long time which means throughout the Exodus story and so this young man would go on, uh, as we know, to lead the Israelite army into the Promised Land in and, and many, many battles. But here, this is his first battle. So how does he fear? How does he get on? Remember, he said no training in military warfare, neither has the people that he leads. They've got no experience. So how are they going to fear when they come up against battle-hardened troops of the Amalekites? Well, surprisingly well, an emphasis on the word surprising, if not bizarre, strange, even weird. And so what happens here in verse 9? Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of your men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Well, it's a little bit unusual. Moses climbing to the hill, but he has the staff of God in his hands. And so we wonder, the staff of God, this is the same staff that Moses had before the burning bush. It's the same staff that Moses threw down in front of Pharaoh and the staff turned into a snake. It's the same staff that Moses held out over the river Nile and the water of the Nile turned to blood. It's the same staff that Moses stretched out across the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted. And so we're primed. We're thinking, oh, wonderful things are going to happen in that battle with Moses standing there with the staff of God. And so... We pick this up in verse 10 and 11. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. Bizarre, isn't it? Most unusual. Now this is not how battles are fought, are they? Battles are fought on, on numbers. Who's got the most soldiers? they fought on Equipment and gear, technology. Who's got the best technology and the most of it? And thirdly, battles are fought and won on tactics. Who can outsmart the other? Who can position their strengths and weaknesses in such a way to win? Well, it looks like there's nothing here. But yes, there is, because we've got this tactic. It's a wonderful tactic. And the tactic is, get God to fight your battle. Because <laughs> that's exactly what they do here. Uh, Moses stretches out his staff and as he does, they win the battle. I mean, Moses is stretching out his arm, and Joshua and his troops are fighting, which is great for experience and uh, morale, uh, you know, building up their morale. But at the end of the day, it's God who wins the battle. But there's a problem, because as Moses stretches out his arms, his arms go tired, and when his arms are stretched out, the Israelites win the battle. But when his arms lower to rest, the tide turns, and the Amalekites win. So there's a problem. But it's very cleverly, simply and cleverly solved. Verse 12. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. It's a simple and clever solution, isn't it? Aaron and a chap called Hur, they roll a stone to a place where Moses can sit and still see the battle and then one stands on either side and they hold up his outstretched arms. Now there's another introduction Jew Uh, Who is Hur? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us who Hur is. However, Jewish tradition says that Hur is the husband of Miriam, which makes Hur the brother-in-law of Moses and Aaron. So we've got a bit of a family situation here where the family are pulling together and because they do, you know, two brothers and a brother-in-law, because they do and because of the mighty hand of God, Joshua wins his first battle. (laughs) He overcomes the enemy with the sword. And as victory is won, we hear God speak. Verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So two things here. First of all, we see that Moses is commanded to write an account of the battle on a scroll. Now this is the first time of of two or three times where we're told that Moses takes out a scroll and records events. And these combination of accounts uh, indicate, bolster the idea that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I mean, 40 years in the desert, what are you going to do with yourself? No screens, no entertainment. So what does Moses do? Well, he collects all of the oral history of the beginnings of the people of Israel, writes that down into a scroll which we call Genesis. And then he gave first-hand accounts of their time in, the Ex- in Egypt and in the Exodus story, in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so these are the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Pentateuch, in which the Jewish folk call the Torah. That's the first thing. The second thing to note is what Moses is asked to record. God wants them to note that the Amalekites are to be completely destroyed by the Israelites. You see, even though Israel has won this battle, it's only the beginning. Justice has not completely been served. God wants these people to be annihilated. Now, it sounds a bit harsh, But there's a bit of background in Jeremiah that helps us understand this. So we need to fast forward a few hundred years to Jeremiah the prophet. And he's looking back at these times. And this is what he writes in a prophecy very early in his ministry. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 2. This is what the Lord says. God's referring to the people of Israel. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness. Through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured who were held guilty and disaster overtook him. So what's happening here? Well, notice the way that God lovingly refers to his people as his bride. His bride who loved him, followed him into the wilderness. And then God changes the metaphor to that of first fruit, the best of the crops, but also dedicated to God. And yet the Amalekites come and to spoil his bride. Steal the first fruits. I mean, that's the perspective we need to put this on. They preyed on the vulnerable and the loved. And so that's why that prophecy that ends with all who devoured her were held guilty. That's the Amalekites were held guilty and disaster overtook them. And you know, it was about 600 years from that first battle. Until when the Amalekites were finally destroyed under the reign of King Hezekiah, six hundred years. Notice both the, the both the mercy and the judgment of God when it comes to Amalekites. The mercy of God because He gave them about six hundred years to repent, to change their ways. But also notice the judgment of God because after the time of repentance had ended, the time He had given them, the judgment that He spoke about in in Exodus chapter seventeen came to fruition. And it's a bit of a warning for us. God gives us time to repent. Generous amounts of time to repent. But don't take it for granted. Don't take his forgiveness for granted. Keep short accounts with God. Repent and ask his forgiveness. It's shorter time from when you realize to when you can. And finally, getting back to Exodus 17, our passage ends with this. It ends on a note of worship. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. God brought a mighty victory that day. And so in response, what do people do? Well, they worship. They build an altar and they worship. Remember, God's people were rescued to do what? To worship. God had rescued them from the Amalekites, won a great victory, and so God's people, they worship. They're learning. And this brings us to our two take-homes for today, the implications from the passage. And the first is to do with this, this rescued to worship. You see, God did not give them victory in the first battle because God rescued them to be a great, mighty military machine. That's not why God rescued them. He rescued them to worship. The victory was important, but it's still not the main thing. We can see how God is molding and shaping his people. Remember, um, though they, they they were free from slavery, they still had the slavery within them and takes a while for God to work that out, to transform them into a worshipping community. So this is the fourth lesson that they've learnt in the wilderness. We'll just track those four lessons because each one of them applies to us as well. Lesson number one, as soon as they were rescued, escaped from slavery, what did the people of uh, Israel do? They standing on the far side, the banks of the Red Sea, what did they do? They broke out in song, celebrated and sung God's praises because rescued people, God's rescue people love to sing his praises. And that includes us. That's the first lesson he's teaching his people. The second lesson uh, is all to do from manna from heaven. They were hungry in the desert. They cried out. And God gave them enough manna for each day. And Jesus, in reference to that, says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4 Every word from the mouth of God. You see, This is what we're learning. Rescued people learn to trust in God's word day by day. Day by day. God's people, the Israelites, they trusted in manna to feed them, nourish them, day by day. And so we as rescued people who worship learn to trust in God's word day by day. The third lesson, water from the rock. The people were crying out from thirst, dying of thirst. And God miraculously quenched their thirst, provided them water from the rock. We think of Jesus. Sitting by the well with the woman, talking about the living water. And all those who take the living water that he offers will never thirst again. And he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And so, what does it mean for us to be rescued to where we worship? Our thirst is quenched by the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the living rock, gives us the Holy Spirit. So it's the third lesson we learned. And today's the fourth lesson. The fourth lesson. As we follow Jesus, we will face opposition. We will face the devil's schemes. The devil loves to isolate and pick off, take out, straggler Christians. One of the reasons why it's so important that we continue to go to church and worship together. But Satan is always scheming against us. And as a worshipping people, we need to be not surprised. We need to be prepared. We need to be like Joshua, putting on his armour and fighting back. And that's why Ephesians chapter 6 verse 11 is so important. This is to us. God's worshipping people, and could be to Joshua just as well. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against devil devil's schemes. That's what worshipping people do. For our struggles are not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God. Now, we haven't got time to discuss the full battle plans Uh, in the previous preaching series on Ephesians. We talked about that. But today is a reminder that as we follow Jesus as a worshipping people, Satan will afflict us with schemes and troubles, and we need to remember and follow Joshua's example. Joshua strapped on the armour, even though Joshua had no idea how to fight. It was his first battle. He had no skill as a soldier, but he strapped on his armour and he went and fought. And who won the victory? God won the victory. And that's how worshipping people respond to the to the schemes of the devil. We put on the armour of God and we stand up and resist. That's the first take home. Being rescued to worship involves resisting the schemes of the devil. The second take home, much more personal. Related to the first take home, but much more direct. Let me ask you this. Who are you being an Aaron to? Who are you being a her for? Remember her, remember Aaron, side by side by Moses, encouraging him, lifting him up, helping him serve God. We all need an Aaron and her in their lives. I mean, I do. As your minister, I could not serve you, be your minister, unless I have an Aaron and a her. And so I thank the session, the elders, who are like Aaron to me. Very supportive. Thank you. I think of my prayer support team when I send a a newsletter out to a few times a year. And thank you for your prayers. And of course, I think of Ben, a good friend. We've been to China and India and served God on adventures. And I'm an Aaron to him, I hope. And he's a her to me that I know. And of course, Judy as well, my biggest support. You see, we are rescued to worship, but we are not rescued to worship alone. So my challenge for you today is, who are you being an Aaron and a her for? Who are you supporting in prayer? Who are you encouraging, building up? Now many of you are doing this anyway. In fact, you might be doing it without thinking. But thank you. Keep it up. Persevere. Keep being that supportive person. You see, it's as we worship together that we can be moulded into a people who serve the living God. Those that try and worship on their own are picked off by Satan and his schemes. So we need to be an Aaron and her for each other and we need to receive that support. So these are our two take-ons. As the Amalekites picked off stragglers, so Satan wants to pick off and annihilate Christians. However, we expect this and we resist. Related to this, we are an Aaron and her for others where we encourage and support each other to be strong in the Lord. And finally, as we think of Moses with outstretched arms on a hill, How can we not think of another hill 1,500 years later where arms were outstretched? Yet, there's some differences there because when Jesus on Calvary stretched out his arms, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he did not have an Aaron and a Hur by his side. He just had a nail, two nails, one in each wrist abandoned and alone. And there's another difference between Jesus and uh, Moses on the hill too because with Joshua and the army, the judgment fell on the enemies of God. But with Jesus, the judgment of his enemies fell on him. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon Jesus. What could possibly motivate the Son of God to give up all his glory and his, his, his friendship, his, his father heart of God? How could he give all that up? Why would he do that? The shame and the agony and the loneliness on the cross. Why did he enjoy that? Well, he endured it so that you and I could be rescued from sin and death, from slavery, and moulded into a people who would worship them with all our hearts, Think of that image that uh, Jeremiah of us being God's bride and us being the first fruits. And that's what we are, God's bride and first fruits as we give our hearts and worship to Him. So let us not waste that freedom. <laughs> let us live our lives, our utmost for His highest. Jesus, captivate every affection of our heart until they are sold out for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for this opportunity to, to open up your word and hear how that you just saved the day, that you rescued your people so they could worship. And we think of Jesus on the cross, the ultimate rescue. Lord, shape and mould our hearts. Take the slavery out of our hearts and give us a freedom to worship you, we pray. Jesus' name. Amen.